Chapter 11 On the Errors of Classical Liberalism and the Future of Liberty 1. Classical liberalism has been in decline for more than a century. Since the second half of the 19th century, in the United States as well as in Western Europe, public affairs have increasingly been shaped instead by socialist ideas. In fact, the 20th century may well be described as the century par excellence of socialism, of communism, fascism, national socialism, and, most enduringly, of social democracy, modern American liberalism, and neoconservatism. The term liberalism here and in the following is used in its original or classical meaning as defined, for instance, by its foremost 20th century proponent Ludwig von Mises in his 1927 treatise Liberalism in a Classical Tradition. Mises writes, quote, The program of liberalism, if condensed into a single word, would have to read property, that is, private ownership of the means of production. For in regard to commodities ready for consumption, private ownership is a matter of course and is not disputed even by the socialists and communists. All the other demands of liberalism result from this fundamental demand. End quote. By contrast, modern American quote-unquote liberalism has almost the opposite meaning which can be traced back to John Stuart Mill and his 1859 book On Liberty as the fountainhead of modern moderate social democratic socialism. Mill, notes Mises, quote, is the originator of the thoughtless confounding of liberal and socialist ideas that led to the decline of English liberalism and to the undermining of the living standards of the English people. Without a thorough study of Mill, it is impossible to understand the events of the last two generations, 1927. For Mill is the great advocate of socialism. All the arguments that could be advanced in favor of socialism are elaborated by him with loving care. In comparison with Mill, all other socialist writers, even Marx, Engels and LaSalle are scarcely of any importance. End quote. To be sure, this decline has not been a continuous one. Matters did not always become worse from a liberal viewpoint. There were also some reprieves. As a result of World War II, for instance, West Germany and Italy experienced significant liberalization in comparison to the status quo ante under national socialism and fascism. Similarly, the collapse of the communist Soviet Empire in the late 1980s has led to a remarkable liberalization across Eastern Europe. However, as much as liberals welcomed these events, they were not indicative of a renaissance of liberalism. Rather, the liberalization of Germany and Italy in the aftermath of World War II and the current post-communist liberalization of Eastern Europe were the outcome of external and accidental events, of military defeat and or outright economic bankruptcy. It was in each case liberalization by default of the old system, and the default option adopted subsequently was simply a variant of socialism, sociodemocracy, as exemplified by the United States as the only surviving, not yet militarily defeated or economically bankrupt, superpower. Thus, even if liberals have enjoyed a few periods of reprieve, ultimately the displacement of liberalism by socialism has been complete. Indeed, so complete has been the socialist victory that today, at the beginning of the 21st century, some neoconservatives have waxed triumphantly about the quote-unquote end of history and the arrival of the quote-unquote last man, that is, of the last millennium of global U.S.-supervised social democracy and the new homo social democraticus. See Francis Fukuyama, The End of History and the Last Man. Summing up his own thesis, Fukuyama there writes that, quote, I argued that a remarkable consensus concerning the legitimacy of liberal, that is, social democratic democracy, as a system of government had emerged throughout the world over the past few years as it conquered rival ideologies like hereditary monarchy, fascism, 
and most recently communism. More than that, however, I argued that liberal democracy may constitute the quote-unquote end point of mankind's ideological evolution and the quote-unquote final form of human government and as such constituted quote-unquote the end of history. That is, while earlier forms of government were characterized by grave defects and irrationalities that led to their eventual collapse, liberal democracy was arguably free from such fundamental internal contradictions. This did not mean that the natural cycle of birth life and death would end, that important events would no longer happen, or that newspapers reporting them would cease to be published. It meant, rather, that there would be no further progress in the development of underlying principles and institutions because all of the really big questions had been settled. End quote. The new conservative movement to which Fukuyama belongs emerged in the late 1960s and early 1970s when the American left became increasingly involved with black power politics, affirmative action, pro-Arabism, and the quote-unquote counterculture. In opposition to these tendencies, many traditional left-wing, frequently former Trotskyite intellectuals and Cold War quote-unquote liberals, led by Irving Kristol and Norman Podoretz, broke ranks with their old allies, frequently crossing over from the long-time haven of left-wing politics, the Democratic Party, to the Republicans. Since then, the new conservatives, while insignificant in sheer numbers, have gained unrivaled influence in American politics promoting typically a moderate welfare state, democratic capitalism, cultural conservatism, and family values, and an interventionist, activist, and in particular Zionist, pro-Israel foreign policy. Represented by figures such as Irvin Kristol and his wife Gertrude Himmelfarb and son William Kristol, Norman Poderetz and his wife Midge Dechter, son John Poderetz and sons-in-law Stephen Munson and Elliot Abrams, by Daniel Bell, Peter Berger, Nathan Glazer, Seema Martin Lipset, Marco Novak, Anne Wildavsky, James Q. Wilson, and journalist commentators such as David Froome, Paul Gigget, Morton Kondrake, Charles Krauthammer, Michael Lindt, Joshua Morafczyk, Emmett Tyrell, and Ben Mortenberg, the new conservatives now exercise controlling interest in such publications as National Interest, Public Interest, Commentary, The New Republic, The American Spectator, The Weekly Standard, The Washington Post, and The Wall Street Journal, and they have close ties to several major foundations such as Bradley, Odin, Pugh, Scaife, and Smith-Richardson. 2. Even if one regards the Hegelian aspirations of this interpretation as preposterous, according to which liberalism marks only a transitory stage in the evolution of the fully developed social democratic man, liberals still must be pained at the mere appearance of truth of neoconservative philosophizing. Thus, writes Fukuyama, quote, for a very large part of the world, there is now no ideology with pretensions to universality that is in a position to challenge liberal democracy and no universal principle of legitimacy other than the sovereignty of the people. We have trouble imagining a world that is radically better than our own or a future that is not essentially democratic and capitalist. We cannot picture to ourselves a world that is essentially different from the present one and at the same time better. It is precisely if we look not just at the past 15 years, but at the whole scope of history that liberal democracy begins to occupy a special kind of place. There is a fundamental process at work that dictates a common evolutionary pattern for all human societies. In short, something like a universal history of mankind in the direction of liberal democracy. If we are now at the point where we cannot imagine a world substantially different from our own, in which there is no apparent or obvious way in which the future will represent a fundamental improvement over our current order, then we must also take into consideration the possibility that history itself might be at an end. End quote. Liberals 
still must be pained at the mere appearance of truth of neoconservative philosophizing. Nor can they console themselves with the knowledge that social democracy is also bound to collapse economically. They knew that communism had to collapse, yet when it did, this did not inaugurate a liberal renaissance. There is no a priori reason to assume that the future breakdown of social democracy will bear any more favorable results. Assuming that the course of human history is determined by ideas rather than quote-unquote blind forces, and historical changes are the result of ideological shifts in public opinion, it follows that the socialist transformation of the last hundred years must be understood as the result of liberalism's intellectual, philosophical, and theoretical defeat, that is, the increasing rejection in public opinion of the liberal doctrine as faulty. In this situation, liberals can react in two ways. On the one hand, they may still want to maintain that liberalism is a sound doctrine and that the public rejects it in spite of its truth. In this case, one must explain why people cling to false beliefs, even if they are aware of correct liberal ideas. Does the truth not always hold its own attraction and rewards? Furthermore, one must explain why the liberal truth is increasingly rejected in favor of socialist falsehoods. Did the population become more indolent or degenerate? If so, how can this be explained? On the other hand, one may consider the rejection as indicative of an error in one's doctrine. In this case, one must reconsider its theoretical foundations and identify the error which can account not only for the doctrine's rejection as false, but more importantly, for the actual course of events. In other words, the socialist transformation must be explained as an intelligible and systematically predictable progressive deconstruction and degeneration of liberal political theory originating in and logically arising from this error as the ultimate source of all subsequent socialist confusion. 3. Liberalism's central and momentous error lies in its theory of government. Classical liberal political philosophy, as personified by Locke and most prominently displayed in Jefferson's Declaration of Independence, was first and foremost a moral doctrine. Drawing on the philosophy of the Stoics and the late Scholastics, it centered around the notions of self-ownership, original appropriation of nature given, unowned resources, property, and contract as universal human rights implied in the nature of man qua rational animal. In the environment of princely and royal rulers, this emphasis on the universality of human rights placed the liberal philosophy naturally in radical opposition to every established government. Thus, Ludwig von Mises, in Nation, State and Economy, characterizes liberalism as, quote-unquote, hostile to princes. In order to avoid any misunderstanding, it should be noted, however, that this sweeping verdict applies and is indeed applied by Mises only to the absolute rulers of 17th and 18th century Europe. It does not apply also to earlier medieval kings and princes who were typically just primus inter pares, that is, voluntary acknowledged authorities held to be subject to the same universal natural law as everyone else. For a liberal, every man, whether king or peasant, was subject to the same universal and eternal principles of justice and a government either could derive its justification from a contract between private property owners, or it could not be justified at all. Thus, Cassirer writes, the doctrine of the state contract becomes in the 17th century a self-evident axiom of political thought. This fact marks a great and decisive step, for if we adopt this view, if we reduce the legal and social order to free individual acts, to a voluntary contractual submission of the governed, all mystery is gone. There's nothing less mysterious than a contract. A contract must be made in full awareness of its meaning and consequences. It presupposes the free consent of all parties concerned. If we can trace the state to such an origin, 
it becomes a perfectly clear and understandable fact. End quote. But could any government be so justified? The affirmative liberal answer is well known. It is set out from the undeniable true proposition that mankind being what it is, murderers, robbers, thieves, thugs and con artists will always exist and life in society will be impossible if they are not threatened with physical punishment. In order to maintain a liberal social order, liberals insisted, it is necessary that its members be in the position to pressure, by threatening or applying violence, anyone who does not respect the life and property of others to acquiesce to the rules of society. From this correct premise, liberals concluded that this indispensable task of maintaining law and order is the unique function of government. Whether this conclusion is correct or not hinges on the definition of government. It is correct if government simply means any individual or firm that provides protection and security services to a voluntary paying clientele of private property owners. However, this was not the definition of government adopted by liberals. For a liberal government is not simply a specialized firm. Rather, government possesses two unique characteristics. Unlike a normal firm, it possesses a compulsory territorial monopoly of jurisdiction, ultimate decision-making, and a right to tax. However, if one assumes this definition of government, then the liberal conclusion is false. It does not follow from the right and need for the protection of person and property that protection rightfully should or effectively can be provided by a monopolist of jurisdiction and taxation. To the contrary, it can be demonstrated that any such institution is incompatible with the rightful and effective protection of property. According to liberal doctrine, private property rights logically and temporally precede any government. They are the result of acts of original appropriation, production, and or exchange from prior to later owner and concern the owner's right to exclusive jurisdiction over definite physical resources. In fact, it is the very purpose of private property to establish physically separated domains of exclusive jurisdiction in order to avoid possible conflicts concerning the use of scarce resources. The liberal position was summed up nicely by the 18th century French physiocrat Mercier de la Rivière, at one time intendant of Martinique, and for a brief period advisor to Catherine the Great of Russia in his L'Ordre Naturel. By virtue of his reason, he explained, man was capable of recognizing the laws leading to his greatest happiness, and all social ills follow from the disregard of these laws of human nature. In human nature, the right of self-preservation implies the right to property, and any individual property in man's products from the soil requires property in the land itself. But the right to property would be meaningless without the freedom of using it, so liberty is derived from the right to property. People flourish as social animals, and through trade and exchange of property they maximize the happiness of all. No private property owner can possibly surrender his right to ultimate jurisdiction over and physical protection of his property to someone else, unless he sells or otherwise transfers his property, in which case someone else gains exclusive jurisdiction over it. Every property owner may partake of the advantages of the division of labor, however, and seek more or better protection of his property through cooperation with other owners and their property. Every property owner may buy from, sell to, or otherwise contract with anyone else concerning more or better property protection, and every property owner may at any time unilaterally discontinue any such cooperation with others or change his respective affiliations. Thus, in order to meet the demand for protection, it would be rightfully possible and is economically likely that specialized individuals or agencies would arise which would provide protection insurance, and arbitration services to voluntary clients for a fee. While it is easy to conceive of the contractual origin of a system of competitive security suppliers, 
it is inconceivable how private property owners could possibly enter a contract which entitled another agent to compel anyone within a given territory to come to it exclusively for protection and judicial decision-making, barring any other agent from offering protection services. Such a monopoly contract would imply that every private property owner had surrendered his rights to ultimate decision-making and the protection of his person and property permanently to someone else. In effect, in transferring this right onto someone else, a person would submit himself into permanent slavery. According to liberal doctrine, any such submission contract is from the outset impermissible, hence null and void, because it contradicts the praxeological foundation of all contracts, that is, private property and individual self-ownership. The contract theory of the state here criticized originated with Thomas Hobbes and his work De Sive and Leviathan, Hobbes there claimed that the legal bond between the ruler and the subject, once it has been tied, is indissoluble. However, notes Cassira, quote, Most influential writers on politics in the 17th century rejected the conclusions drawn by Hobbes. They charged the great logician with a contradiction in terms. If a man could give up his personality, that is, his right to self-ownership, he would cease being a moral being. He would become a lifeless thing. And how could such a thing obligate itself? How could it make a promise or enter into a social contract? This fundamental right, the right to personality, includes in a sense all the others. To maintain and to develop his personality is a universal right. It is not subject to the freaks and fancies of single individuals and cannot therefore be transferred from one individual to another. The contract of rulership, which is the legal basis of all civil powers, has therefore its inherent limits. There is no pactum subjectionis, no act of submission by which man can give up the state of a free agent and enslave himself. For by such an act of renunciation he would give up that very character which constitutes his nature and essence. He would lose his humanity. End quote. No one rightfully can or likely will agree to render his person and property permanently defenseless against the actions of someone else. Similarly inconceivable is the notion that anyone would endow his monopolistic protector with a permanent right to tax. No one can or will enter a contract that allowed the protector to determine unilaterally, without consent of the protected, the sum that the protected must pay for his protection. Since Locke, liberals have tried to solve this internal contradiction through the makeshift of tacit, implicit, or conceptual agreements, contracts, or constitutions. Yet all of these characteristically torturous and confused attempts have only contributed to one and the same unavoidable conclusion, that it is impossible to derive a justification for government from explicit contracts between private property owners. On John Locke's views on consent, see his two treatises on government, book two. Recognizing that government is not based on express consent, he writes there, quote, The difficulty is what ought to be looked upon as a tacit consent and how far it binds, that is, how far anyone shall be looked on to have consented and thereby submitted to any government where he has made no expression of it at all. And to this I say that every man that hath any possession or enjoyment of any part of the dominions of any government doth hereby give his tacit consent, and is as far forth obliged to obedience to the laws of that government during such enjoyment as any one under it, whether this his possession be of land to him and his heirs forever, or a lodging only for a week, or whether it be barely travelling freely on the highway, and in effect it reaches as far as the very being of any one within the territories of that government. End quote. In effect, according to Locke, once a government has come into existence, regardless of whether one has expressly agreed to its rule in the first place or not, and no matter what this government does in the following, one has tacitly consented to it, and whatever it does as long as one continues to live in its territory. 
that is, every government always has the unanimous consent of everyone residing under its jurisdiction, and only emigration, exit, counts as a no vote and a withdrawal of consent, according to Locke. For a modern, even less convincing, or rather more absurd attempt along the same lines, see James M. Buchanan and Gordon Tullock, The Calculus of Consent. As Locke before them, Buchanan and Tullock recognized that no government anywhere is based on express consent or explicit contracts. But not to worry, they assure us, for this does not mean that governments do not nonetheless rest on unanimous consent. Even if actual disagreements and real naysayers exist, this fact might merely obscure some underlying and more profound agreement and unanimously shared consensus on the level of constitutional choice and decision-making. However, this underlying deeper agreement on the quote-unquote rules of the game, we are then told by Buchanan and Tullock, is also not an actual agreement. In fact, no constitution has ever been expressly agreed upon by everyone concerned. Rather, it is what they refer to as conceptual agreement and conceptual unanimity. In so twisting a real no into a conceptual yes, Buchanan and Tullock then first come to diagnose the state as a voluntary institution on par with private business firms. Quote, the market and the state are both devices through which cooperation is organized and made possible. Men cooperate through exchange of goods and services in organized markets, and such cooperation implies mutual gain. The individual enters into an exchange relation in which he furthers his own interest by providing some product or service that is of direct benefit of the individual on the other side of the transaction. At base, political and collective action under the individualistic view of the state is much the same. Two or more individuals find it mutually advantageous to join forces to accomplish certain common purposes. In real sense, they exchange inputs in the securing of the commonly shared output. End quote. Moreover, by the same token, Buchanan claims to have discovered a justification for the status quo, whatever it happens to be. Quote, the institutions of the status quo, unquote, always embody and describe an, quote, existing and ongoing implicit social contract, unquote, even, quote, when an original contract may never have been made, when current members of the community sense no moral or ethical obligation to adhere to the terms that are defined in the status quo, and when such contract may have been violated many times over. The status quo defines that which exists. Hence, regardless of its history, it must be evaluated as if it were legitimate contractually. End quote. 4. Liberalism's erroneous acceptance of the institution of government as consistent with the basic liberal principles of self-ownership, original appropriation, property and contract, consequently led to its own destruction. First and foremost, it follows from the initial error concerning the moral status of government that the liberal solution to the eternal human problem of security, a constitutionally limited government, is a contradictory, praxeologically impossible ideal. Contrary to the original liberal intent of safeguarding liberty and property, every minimal government has the inherent tendency to become a maximal government. Once the principle of government, judicial monopoly and the power to tax is incorrectly accepted as just, any notion of restraining government power and safeguarding individual liberty and property is illusory. Predictably, under monopolistic auspices, the price of justice and protection will continually rise and the quality of justice and protection fall. A tax-funded protection agency is a contradiction in terms, for it is an expropriating property protector that will inevitably lead to more taxes and less protection. Even if, as liberals have proposed, a government limited its activities exclusively to the protection of pre-existing private property rights, the further question of how much security to produce would arise. Motivated, as everyone is, 
by self-interest and a disutility of labor, but equipped with the unique power to tax, a government agent's goal will invariably be to maximize expenditures on protection, and almost all of a nation's wealth can conceivably be consumed by the cost of protection, and at the same time to minimize the production of protection. The more money one can spend and the less one must work to produce, the better off one will be, explains Murray and Rothbard. Quote, there is a common fallacy held even by most advocates of laissez-faire that the government must supply, quote-unquote, police protection, as if police protection were a single, absolute entity, a fixed quantity of something which the government supplies to all. In actual fact, there are almost infinite degrees of all sorts of protection. For any given person or business, the police can provide everything from a policeman on the beat who patrols once a night to two policemen patrolling constantly on each block to cruising patrol cars to one or even several round-the-clock personal bodyguards. Furthermore, there are many other decisions the police must make, the complexity of which becomes evident as soon as we look beneath the veil of the myth of absolute, quote-unquote, protection. How shall the police allocate their funds, which are, of course, always limited, as are the funds of all other individual organizations and agencies? How much shall the police invest in electronic equipment, fingerprinting equipment, detectives as against uniformed police, patrol cars as against foot police, etc.? The point is that the government has no rational way to make these allocations. The government only knows that it has a limited budget. End quote. Moreover, a judicial monopoly will inevitably lead to a steady deterioration in the quality of protection. If no one can appeal for justice except to government, justice will be perverted in favor of the government, constitutions and supreme courts notwithstanding. Constitutions and supreme courts are government constitutions and agencies, and whatever limitations on government action they might contain or find is invariably decided by agents of the very institution under consideration. Predictably, the definition of property and protection will continually be altered and the range of jurisdiction expanded to the government's advantage. Explains Murray and Rothbard, quote, No constitution can interpret or enforce itself. It must be interpreted by men. And if the ultimate power to interpret a constitution is given to the government's own Supreme Court, then the inevitable tendency is for the court to continue to place its imprimatur on ever broader powers for its own government. Furthermore, the highly touted checks and balances and separations of powers in the American government are flimsy indeed, since in the final analysis, all of these divisions are part of the same government and are governed by the same set of rulers. End quote. Second, it follows likewise from the error regarding the moral status of government that the traditional liberal preference for and attachment to local, decentralized and territorial small government is inconsistent and contradictory. Contrary to the original liberal intent, every government, including local government, has an inherent tendency towards centralization and ultimately becoming a world government. Once it is incorrectly accepted that in order to protect and enforce peaceful cooperation between two individuals, A and B, it is justified and necessary to have a judicial monopolist X, a twofold conclusion follows. If more than one territorial monopolist exists, X, Y, and Z, then, just as there can be presumably no peace among A and B without X, so can there be no peace between the monopolists X, Y, and Z, as long as they remain in a quote-unquote state of anarchy with each other. Hence, in order to fulfill the liberal desideratum of universal and eternal peace, all political centralization and unification, and ultimately the establishment of a single world government, is justified and necessary. Interestingly, while socialists of all stripes, traditional Marxists, social democrats, 
American quote-unquote liberals and neoconservatives have typically shown little difficulty in accepting the idea of world government and have thus at least been consistent, classical liberals have rarely if ever acknowledged the fact that by the logic of their own doctrine they too are forced to be advocates of a single, unified world government and clung instead inconsistently to the idea of decentralized government. Now, theoretical consistency is not necessarily a good thing, and if a theory is consistent but false, one might well admit that it may be preferable to be inconsistent. However, an inconsistent theory can never be true, and in not facing up to the inconsistency of their theoretical position, liberals have typically neglected to pay attention to and account for two important, and from their own viewpoint, anomalous phenomena. On the one hand, if law and order requires a single, monopolistic judge and enforcer, government, as they claim, why does the relationship between, say, German and American businessmen appear to be just as peaceful as that between, say, New York and a California businessman? despite the fact that the former live in a quote-unquote state of anarchy vis-à-vis each other. Isn't this positive proof that it is not necessary to have government in order to have peace? On the other hand, while the relationship between the citizens and firms of different countries is neither more nor less peaceful than that between citizens and firms of one and the same country, it appears to be equally obvious that the relationship of any one government say the US vis-à-vis both its own citizens as well as other foreign governments and their citizens, is anything but peaceful. Indeed, in his well-known book Death by Government, Rudolf Rummel has estimated that in the course of the 20th century alone, governments have been responsible for the death of approximately 170 million people. Isn't this positive proof, then, that the liberal view concerning the quote-unquote state of anarchy as conflict-ridden and of quote-unquote statism as the sine qua non of security and peace is just about the reverse of the truth? Last, it follows from the error of accepting government as just that the ancient idea of the universality of human rights and the unity of law is confused and, under the heading, quote-unquote, equality before the law, transformed into a vehicle of egalitarianism. As opposed to the anti-egalitarian, or even aristocratic, sentiment of old liberals, once the idea of universal human rights is combined with government, the result will be egalitarianism and the destruction of human rights. Once a government has been incorrectly assumed as just and hereditary princes and kings ruled out as incompatible with the idea of universal human rights, the question of how to square government with the idea of the universality and equality of human rights arises. The liberal answer is to open participation and entry into government on equal terms to everyone via democracy. Everyone not just a hereditary class of nobles, is permitted to become a government official and exercise every government function. However, this democratic equality before the law is something entirely different from and incompatible with the idea of one universal law equally applicable to everyone, everywhere and at all times. In fact, the former objectionable schism and inequality of the higher law of kings versus the subordinate law of ordinary subjects is fully preserved under democracy in the separation of public versus private law and the supremacy of the former over the latter. Under democracy, everyone is equal insofar as entry into government is open to all on equal terms. In a democracy, no personal privileges or privileged persons exist. However, functional privileges and privileged functions exist. As long as they act in official capacity, public officials are governed and protected by public law and occupy thereby a privileged position vis-à-vis persons acting under the mere authority of private law, most fundamentally in being permitted to support their own activities by taxes imposed on private law subjects. The incompatibility of private and public law has been succinctly summarized by Randy E. Barnett, Fuller Law and Anarchism, quote, For example, the state says that citizens may not take from another by force and against his will that which belongs to another. 
and yet the state, through its power to tax, quote-unquote, legitimately, does just that. More essentially, the state says that a person may use force upon another only in self-defense, that is, only as a defense against another who initiated the use of force. To go beyond one's right of self-defense would be to aggress on the rights of others a violation of one's legal duty. And yet the state, by its claimed monopoly, forcibly imposes its jurisdiction on persons who may have done nothing wrong. By doing so, it aggresses against the rights of its citizens, something which its rules say citizens may not do. End quote. To this one might want to add only two more pertinent observations. The state says to its citizens, do not kidnap or enslave another man. And yet the state itself does precisely this in conscripting its citizens into its army. And the state says to its citizens, do not kill or murder your fellow men. And yet the state does precisely this once it has declared a state of war to exist. Privilege and legal discrimination will not disappear. To the contrary, rather than being restricted to princes and nobles, Privilege, protectionism and legal discrimination will be available to all and can be exercised by everyone. Predictably, under democratic conditions, the tendency of every monopoly to increase prices and decrease quality will only be stronger and more pronounced. As a hereditary monopolist, a king or prince regarded the territory and people under his jurisdiction as his personal property and engaged in a monopolistic exploitation of his quote-unquote property. Under democracy, monopoly and monopolistic exploitation do not disappear. Even if everyone is permitted to enter government, this does eliminate the distinction between the rulers and the ruled. Government and the governed are not one and the same person. Instead of a prince who regards the country as his private property, a temporary and interchangeable caretaker is put in monopolistic charge of the country. The caretaker does not own the country, but as long as he is in office, he is permitted to use it to his and his protégé's advantage. He owns its current use, usufruct, but not its capital stock. This will not eliminate exploitation. To the contrary, it will make exploitation less calculating and more likely to be carried out with little or no regard to the capital stock. In other words, exploitation will be short-sighted. As Rothbard notes in this connection, it, quote, is curious that almost all writers parrot the notion that private owners possessing time preference must take the short view, while only government officials can take the long view and allocate property to advance the general welfare. The truth is exactly the reverse. The private individual, secure in his property and in his capital resource, can take the long view, for he wants to maintain the capital value of his resource. It is a government official who must take and run, who must plunder the property while he is still in command. Unquote. Moreover, with free entry into public participation in government, the perversion of justice will proceed even faster. Instead of protecting pre-existing private property rights, democratic government will become a machine for the continual redistribution of pre-existing property rights in the name of illusory social security, until the ideal of universal and immutable human rights disappears and is replaced by that of law as positive government-made legislation. 5. In light of this, an answer to the question of the future of liberalism can be sought. Because of its own fundamental error regarding the moral status of government, liberalism actually contributed to the destruction of everything it had originally set out to preserve and protect, liberty and property. Once the principle of government had been incorrectly accepted, it was only a matter of time until the ultimate triumph of socialism over liberalism. The present neoconservative quote-unquote end of history of global US-enforced social democracy is the result of two centuries of liberal confusion, thus Liberalism in its present form has no future. Rather, its future is social democracy, and the future has already arrived, and we know that it does not work. 
Once the premise of government is accepted, liberals are left without argument when socialists pursue this premise to its logical end. If monopoly is just, then centralization is just. If taxation is just, then more taxation is also just. And if democratic equality is just, then the expropriation of private property owners is just too, while private property is not. Indeed, what can a liberal say in favor of less taxation and redistribution? If it is admitted that taxation and monopoly are just, then the liberal has no principal moral case to make. Thus, writes Murray and Rothbard, quote, If it is legitimate for a government to tax, why not tax its subjects to provide other goods and services that may be useful to consumers? Why shouldn't the government, for example, build steel plants, provide shoes, dams, postal service, etc.? For each of these goods and services is useful to consumers. If the laissez-faireists object that the government should not build steel plants or shoe factories and provide them to consumers, either free or for sale, because tax coercion has been employed in constructing these plants, well, then the same objection can of course be made to governmental police or judicial service. The government should be acting no more immorally from a laissez-faire point of view when providing housing or steel than when providing police protection. Government limited to protection then cannot be sustained even within the laissez-faire ideal itself much less from any other consideration. It is true that the laissez-faire ideal could still be employed to prevent such quote-unquote second-degree coercive activities of government, that is, coercion beyond the initial coercion of taxation, as price control or outlawry of pornography, but the quote-unquote limits have now become flimsy indeed and may be stretched to virtually complete collectivism in which the government only supplies goods and services, yet supplies all of them. End quote. To lower taxes is not a moral imperative. Rather, the liberal case is exclusively an economic one. For instance, lower taxes will produce certain long-run economic benefits. However, at least in the short run and for some people, the current tax recipients, lower taxes also imply economic costs. Without moral argument at his disposal, a liberal is left only with the tool of cost-benefit analysis. But any such analysis must involve an interpersonal comparison of utility and such a comparison is impossible, scientifically impermissible. Hence, the outcome of cost-benefit analyses is arbitrary, and every proposal justified with reference to them is mere opinion. In this situation, democratic socialists only appear more upfront, consistent and consequent, while liberals come across as starry-eyed, confused and unprincipled or even opportunistic. They accept the basic premise of the current order of democratic government, but then constantly lament its anti-liberal outcome. If liberalism is to have any future, it must repair its fundamental error. Liberals will have to recognize that no government can be contractually justified, that every government is destructive of what they want to preserve, and that protection and the production of security can only be rightfully and effectively undertaken by a system of competitive security suppliers. That is, liberalism will have to be transformed into the theory of private property anarchism, or a private law society as first outlined nearly 150 years ago by Gustave de Molinari and in our own time fully elaborated by Murray Rothbard. Such a theoretical transformation would have an immediate twofold effect. On the one hand, it would lead to a purification of the contemporary liberal movement. Social Democrats and liberal clothes and many high-ranking liberal government functionaries would swiftly dissociate themselves from this new liberal movement. On the other hand, the transformation would lead to the systematic radicalization of the liberal movement. For those members of the movement who still hold on to the classic notion of universal human rights and the idea that self-ownership and private property rights precede all government and legislation, the transition from liberalism to private property anarchism is only a small intellectual step, 
especially in light of the obvious failure of democratic government to provide the only service that it was ever intended to provide, that of protection. Private property anarchism is simply consistent liberalism. Liberalism thought through to its ultimate conclusion, or liberalism restored to its original intent. An instructive example for the logical-theoretical affinity of classical liberalism and private property anarchism, that is radical libertarianism, is provided by Ludwig von Mises and his influence. Mises' best-known students today are Friedrich A. Hayek, Amore and Rothbard. The former became Mises' student in the 1920s before Mises had fully worked out his own intellectual system and would essentially become a moderate, right-wing social democrat. Rothbard, on the other hand, became Mises' student in the 1950s after Mises had worked out his entire system in his magnum opus, Human Action, a treatise on economics, and would become the theoretician of anarcho-capitalism. Unshaken, Mises would maintain his original theoretical position as a minimum state liberal. Yet, while distancing himself equally from Hayek's left-wing and Rothbard's right-wing deviationism, it is clear from Mises' review of Rothbard's first magnum opus, Man, Economy and State, that it was Rothbard to whom he felt a greater theoretical affinity. More importantly, of the following generations of intellectuals, up to the present, few of those who fully absorbed the work of Mises and Hayek and Rothbard have remained true to the quote-unquote original Mises, and fewer still have become Hayekians, while the overwhelming majority has come to adopt Rothbard's revisions of the Miesian system as the logically consequent fulfillment of Mises' own original theoretical intent. However, this small theoretical step has momentous practical implications. In taking this step, liberals would renounce their allegiance to the present system, denounce democratic government as illegitimate, and reclaim their right to self-protection. Politically, with this step, they would return to the very beginnings of liberalism as a revolutionary creed. In denying the validity of all hereditary privileges, classical liberals would be placed in fundamental opposition to all established governments. Characteristically, liberalism's greatest political triumph, the American Revolution, was the outcome of a secessionist war. And in the Declaration of Independence, in justifying the actions of the American colonists, Jefferson affirmed that, quote, governments are instituted among men deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, unquote, to secure the right to, quote, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, unquote. And, quote, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness, unquote. Private property anarchists would only reaffirm the classic liberal right, quote, to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security, unquote. Of course, by itself, the renewed radicalism of the liberal movement would be of little consequence, although, as the American Revolution teaches, radicalism may well be popular. Instead, it is the inspiring vision of a fundamental alternative to the present system which flows from this new radicalism that will finally break the social democratic machine. Rather than supranational political integration, world government, constitutions, courts, banks and money, global social democracy, and universal and ubiquitous multiculturalism, anarchist liberals propose the decomposition of the nation-state into its constituent heterogeneous parts. As the classic forebearers, new liberals do not seek to take over any government. They ignore government. They only want to be left alone by government and secede from its jurisdiction to organize their own protection. Unlike their predecessors who merely sought to replace a larger government with a smaller one, however, new liberals pursued a logic of secession to its end. 
They propose unlimited secession, that is, the unrestricted proliferation of independent free territories until the state's range of jurisdiction finally withers away. Interestingly, just as Jefferson and the American Declaration of Independence consider secession from a government's jurisdiction a basic human right, so Ludwig von Mises, the 20th century foremost champion of liberalism, has been an outspoken proponent of the right to secede as implied in the most fundamental human right to self-determination. Thus, he writes, quote, The right of self-determination in regard to the question of membership in a state thus means, whenever the inhabitants of a particular territory, whether it be a single village, a whole district, or a series of adjacent districts, make it known, by a freely conducted plebiscite, that they no longer wish to remain united to a state, their wishes are to be respected and complied with. This is the only feasible and effective way of preventing revolutions and civil and international wars. If it were in any way possible to grant this right of self-determination to every individual, it would have to be done. End quote. Essentially with this statement, Mises has already crossed the line separating classical liberalism and Rothbard's private property anarchism, for a government allowing unlimited secession is of course no longer a compulsory monopolist of law and order, but a voluntary association. Thus, note Rothbard with regard to Mises' pronouncement, quote, Once admit any right of secession whatever, and there is no logical stopping point, short of the right of individual secession, which logically entails anarchism, since then individuals may secede and patronize their own defense agencies, and the state has crumbled. Unquote. To this end, and in complete contrast to the statist projects of quote-unquote European integration and a quote-unquote new world order, they promote a vision of a world of tens of thousands of free countries, regions and cantons, of hundreds of thousands of independent free cities, such as the present-day oddities of Monaco, Andorra, San Marino, Liechtenstein, formerly Hong Kong and Singapore, and even more numerous free districts and neighborhoods economically integrated through free trade. The smaller the territory, the greater the economic pressure of opting for free trade, and an international gold commodity money standard. If and when this alternative liberal vision gains prominence in public opinion, the end of the social democratic quote-unquote end of history will give rise to a liberal renaissance.